Tuesday, February 28th marks one year since we launched the DSR Daily Brief. We're showing our thanks by providing you with our best sale price ever on membership. Through the end of March, visit the dsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DAILYBRIEF to receive 50% off our regular membership price of $50 per year or $5 per month. Members receive access to bonus content, an ad-free listening experience, exclusive blog posts, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. This is a one-time only offer, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DAILYBRIEF to receive 50% off. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. We're doing a one-on-one today with Representative Seth Moulton, uh, who is a a member of Congress serving the 6th Congressional District from Massachusetts. He has been serving that district for the past uh, eight years. He's a former Marine Corps officer, and he's a member of the Democratic Party. Welcome, Congressman Moulton. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Uh, you know, I, I want to get, I initially wanted to talk to you a little bit about 20 years after in Iraq, but I, I want to start with the story that's really dominating headlines today. Uh, And that has to do with the most recent school shooting. Um, When I say the most recent, of course, I think we're in day 86 of the year and we're in school shooting 130 or something like that. I saw a number of members of Congress of the Republican Party, some members of the Senate, uh, interviewed about it today. And their response was the usual range of thoughts and prayers. It's too early to comment on this. Two, one or two who had the courage to say we're not going to do anything about it. Uh, what's your reaction? You've been outspoken that uh, weapons of war should not be in the hands of average citizens. Once again, we have an instance uh, where uh, the perpetrator of this crime had uh, uh, two assault rifles. I mean, this is absolutely infuriating. And as a father of two daughters who go to school, the fact that I have to worry about this in 2023 as an American, it's just ridiculous. And we can stop this. This is within our power to stop. We just need to have the courage to do it. All these Republicans, they know the truth. They know they can change the law. They're just wimps. They're scared. They're more scared of losing an election than doing the right thing for the American people to fundamentally keep the American people safe. It's, it's infuriating. And, and you know what? To connect the two, I've seen the effects of gun violence firsthand. You know, I carried a gun every single day in Iraq. Guns even saved my life. But the idea that you need weapons of war on the streets or in our schools is just absurd. 
And by the way, let's be clear, there are a lot of weapons of war that we have perfectly outlawed under the Second Amendment. You're not allowed to have machine guns, anti-tank rockets. Look, in addition to the assault rifle that I had with me every single day I was in Iraq, I had two grenades strapped to my chest. And I was perfectly safe. I never blew myself up with my grenades. I would feel perfectly safe sitting next to you, David, with two grenades. But guess what? You wouldn't. And no one in America would. And so we've made a decision a long time ago that you're not allowed to carry grenades around. Why on earth should you be able to carry an assault rifle whose sole purpose is to just kill other people? You don't need it to hunt. You don't need it to keep you safe any more than you need grenades. It's absolutely absurd. And, and frankly, these, these Republicans, I mean, pardon my French, but they're just assholes to get up there and say to us, say to fellow Americans, we can't do anything about it. You're getting emotional. I mean, the fact that they have no emotion over little kids getting killed, gunned down in school, in my mind, they're just completely unfit for office, completely unfit to have any leadership position in the United States of America. Yeah, well, and, you know, some of them, including the congressman from the district, uh, you know, like to send out Christmas cards holding um, assault weapons with their little kids holding assault weapons, their wives holding assault weapons. Uh, it's become a kind of a calling card in the party. They're not just the party that opposes gun reforms, uh, despite the fact that 90% of Americans support common sense gun reform. They're actually the pro-assault weapon party. How, how did we get to that place? The influence of money in politics and a bunch of politicians who don't have the basic courage to stand up to that influence. I mean, when we know you just cited some of the statistics, the vast majority of Americans of both political parties are for common sense gun reforms, common sense gun safety laws that would save a lot of lives if we could get past. And yet all these Republicans, they're just scared of the NRA lobby, of the NRA lobby that says that we're going to go against you, we're going to try to primary you if you do the right thing for the American people. And you know the most amazing thing is? NRA membership is in favor of these reforms. The majority of NRA members want these reforms, but it's just the extremists who run their political action committee or whatever that have these Republicans by the you-know-what. You're right. It's frustrating, and it doesn't seem like change is going to happen. I would add, by the way, that several of the Republicans said, well, the problem is really mental health. Let's deal with that. And my reaction to that was, okay, let's deal with that. Okay, guys, we, you know, we got a mental health problem in this country. We don't fund mental health care sufficiently. There's a stigma even in reporting mental health care. Um, let's beef up the work, you know, the mental health, if that's what you think it is. But they don't even do that, right? I mean, it's, it's an utterly cynical kind of comment. I mean, it is cynical because a lot of these Republicans are exactly the Republicans, as you've said, who voted against mental health reforms. Now, some Republicans have. I mean, I've worked with Republicans. I passed the bill to establish 988. That was my bill 
the new National Mental Health Hotline that anyone from anywhere can dial 988 in the event of a mental health crisis, you or a loved one. And I worked with a, a fellow veteran, a Republican across the aisle, a conservative Republican even from Utah, to get that passed. So I don't want to say that no Republicans are ever willing to work on mental health, but the bottom line is that this is a, this is a pathetic excuse. Yeah, no, no doubt that it is. Let's go to another headline, which will lead us back into what you know our original topic was here. Uh, an American contractor was killed by uh, an attack tied to um, uh, some Iranian forces in Syria. Uh, the United States responded to that attack. Uh, there were hearings yesterday, I think Senate hearings with uh, the Secretary of Defense, uh, in which a um, number of members of the Senate were upset at the delay between when the US, when the attack took place and when the uh, the uh, Congress was informed of it. The administration also seems to uh, now be holding back and 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 suggesting they're not going to uh, take further steps um, uh, in this particular case. This does seem to be a bit of a forever war. These are bits of uh, ISIS and their allies, allies still out there. As somebody who served, started serving, uh, I guess, 22 years ago, um, does do, do, does the fact that this goes on and on and on, uh, how, how does that sit with you? And, and do you think that's ever going to end? Or do you think a permanent, uh, if limited, U.S. military presence in that part of the world is just something we've got to accept? Well, of course it's frustrating. I mean, I've spent a lot of time over there uh, fighting these wars. Frankly, I don't think there's anyone who wants to bring the troops home more than a veteran like myself. But I do think there is, from a national security perspective, the reality that ISIS remains a threat. It's the most dangerous terrorist organization in the world. And these brave Americans who are out there in small numbers, uh, generally uh, pretty safe. I mean, it's it's terribly tragic that uh, one American just lost his life, but it's been a while since that's happened. They're out there doing a job that does fundamentally keep Americans safe here at home. If we allow ISIS to regain strength, to have the ability to commit attacks overseas, which they clearly want to do. And it's very clear that this is an international terrorist organization that wants to kill Americans. If we allow that to happen, if we allow that to fester and grow, it, it does mean more risk of an, a, ter- a terrorist attack here in America or against Americans overseas. So I'm frankly proud. I'm proud of the troops who are out there. There's not many of them. It's a small commitment but they are doing important work to keep us safe. Um, Having said that, we uh, are seeing a sort of major reset in the way that we're looking at the region. Clearly began uh, with the Biden administration pulling out of Afghanistan. Uh, It has uh, included a refocusing of much of our uh, strategic um, uh, uh, effort to um, the Indo-Pacific region, to the Quad, to AUKUS, to uh, China, to building our alliances around China. Um, and this has created a, a, a something 
of an apparent void in the Middle East. Now we have China stepping in, brokering a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, we have a, a rapprochement between a number of the countries in the region with Assad. Um, uh, and at the same time, we are somewhat alienated with our closest ally in the region, Israel, because of the um, assault on democracy that's being led by its current prime minister. Uh, it seems like U.S. influence in the region uh, 20 years uh, after we went in is waning. What do you think? Look, I think it's fair to say that we have less influence in the Middle East than we did when we had over 100,000 troops there, without question. But in order to keep Americans safe all around the globe, in order to balance our national security commitments everywhere, we sometimes have to rebalance our forces. And there's no question in my mind that the greatest threat, as Republicans and Democrats agree, the greatest threat is in the Pacific um, from China potentially starting a war. But, you know, when we had those over 100,000 troops in the Middle East, it's not like we didn't have any troops in Japan or South Korea. You know, there's always a balance here. And I think that the, the, the Biden administration, although this really started with the Obama administration's pivot to China, I think that they're trying to find the right balance. Now, I will say on your point about a, a China coming in and f sort of filling a void and brokering a deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran, uh, I questioned some uh, administration officials about this recently before the Armed Services Committee. And they said, well, look, China doesn't really deserve too much credit here because they kind of just swooped in at the last minute and took credit for the deal. I said, look, if that's what China did, then they were pretty damn smart. Why the hell weren't we the ones to swoop in at the last minute and take credit for a deal? And so we don't want to leave a vacuum in the Middle East that an adversary like China can come in and occupy. That is a fair criticism. And it suggests that while in general we're getting the balance right and we do have to put way more emphasis on the Pacific, we might want to check exactly what we're doing in the Middle East and whether we can tweak it so that China doesn't swoop in like they did just a few weeks ago. It is, of course, a double-edged sword, right? China is now the one that's having to deal more with the Taliban than we are. Um, and, you know, on some level, I think we, we we might be inclined to respond, well, good luck with that. Um, <laughs> The Chinese have this great, you know, there's a lot of great Chinese proverbs, right? And they have one that I think is um, very relevant to national security. There's an age-old Chinese proverb that says, your goal should be to win wars without fighting them. You know, just by your presence, by your diplomacy, win the war before you have to fight it. And, and, and I pointed out that when we were bogged down in both Iraq and Afghanistan for years, we were kind of doing the exact opposite. We were fighting wars without winning them. So getting this balance right is important. I think the small troop presence that we have in the Middle East right now is essentially the right balance, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be tweaked over time. And certainly our goal in the Pacific is to prevent a war from ever being fought. Yeah, well, I couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. I, I, I personally, as somebody who's been dealing with foreign policy in Washington for more than 30 years now, uh, am concerned. Uh, when I listen to some of the people on the committee that you uh, are part of, this new special committee looking at the U.S. relationship uh, with uh, China, or in the title of the committee, it's the Chinese Communist Party, I hear 
echoes of Cold War. I hear zero-sum formulations. I hear people saying China should have no influence, any gained influence by China comes at our expense. Uh, we must prepare for war uh, uh, in Taiwan. We have generals going out saying that they expect that to happen soon. And I, and I, and I think to myself, along the lines of what you just said, um, you know, this isn't the Cold War. There are 70,000 U.S. companies operating in China. We import five to $600 billion a year of stuff from China. We export several hundred billions of dollars a year of stuff from China. China is, you know, and for all of history has had a big place on the world stage and will likely continue to have a big place on the world stage and will therefore be necessary to addressing global issues like climate or uh uh, uh, pandemics or arms control. And so do, do, uh, do you fear that we are uh, mo moving uh, in a dangerous way towards a Cold War with China? Do you think there is an option to find a step short of that that achieves the goal you just spoke of, uh, which is winning the war without fighting it? Yes, Absolutely. I do not think that we have to fight a war with China. I think that we can deter and prevent a war with China. But I also think it's going to take a lot of work. And I agree with you. Look, China is uh, a world power that's always going to have a place on the world stage. Uh, we have a very intertwined economic relationship with them. I wish our diplomatic relationship were more uh, positive and productive. And that's certainly where we want to be. But it is also the reality that all those ties that you articulated, all the business ties, all the, um, the, the roles that they have on the international stage, the importance of cooperating with them on climate change and things like that, none of those things are necessarily going to stop Xi Jinping from invading Taiwan. He's made it very clear. I mean, listen to what he says. He said that he wants to do that. And so while I completely agree with your vision for the future, and I absolutely do not believe we have to fight a war to get there. I do think that the risk of war, not because we're warmongering, but because China, the Chinese Communist Party, is warmongering because they've made it very clear they want to start a war over Taiwan. I think that risk is a lot higher than many Americans appreciate. Do you think we would actually go to war to defend Taiwan, which is a tough proposition uh, this is not Ukraine. There is no long Polish border against across which we can, you know, pump in supplies once a war starts. Um, and, uh, you know, you have an acute perspective on what happens when America goes into uh, uh, wars. And this would be a war on a different scale. It would be a terrible war. But yes, I do think we'd be willing to do it. And the fundamental reason for that is that if we just say uh, to our ally Taiwan, oh yeah, no, we were kidding, we're not going to do anything to help, then our credibility, the credibility of our deterrent against adversaries all over the world is shot to shreds in a heartbeat. And that could actually lead to more conflict. And that's why this is such a dangerous situation and why it's so important that we never get to that point where China crosses the strait and invades this sovereign island. Because if they do, we have two terrible choices. One 
is is what you just articulated to say, oh yeah, no, we're not we're we're not going to do anything. You know, we're not a credible ally. We're not gonna we're not gonna have your back as we have clearly. Um, well, or or we could treat it like Ukraine and say we're going to support you. We're just not going to fight alongside you. Yeah, but realistically, I mean, as you said, this is a very different situation. We don't can't you know we can't um, send. Uh, weapons in for months, months of assistance, you know, to this island after a conflict were to start. I mean, that's just not realistic. It's one of the challenges of this particular situation. But of course, the second option, as you've also articulated, is that we get into a war. It's a devastating war. I mean, you could wake up tomorrow and have two U.S. aircraft carriers at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, almost 10,000 young Americans dead. Uh, That's not a future that any of us want to even contemplate either. And that's why it's so important that we've focus on how we deter and prevent this war. And, and it's an important point to recognize that for all our success in Ukraine, and I mean, and, and people are amazed at how well the Ukrainians are doing and how effective our assistance has been. For all that success, we have to admit that deterrence failed, that we have the largest ground war in Europe since World War II because deterrence failed. We cannot let deterrence fail in the Pacific. Um, You know, when I listened to the first hearings of that committee, uh, I had an unusual reaction, which was I thought several of the Republican leaders on the committee were taking this issue seriously. And I sensed that there was a bit of bipartisan seriousness about this. Uh, that this issue was seen as significant on both sides and that the committee was seeking to play a constructive role. What does that look like to you? What does a constructive role for that committee look like? Well, David, it's sad that you have to point this out because you you should be able to just look at any part of Congress and see um, people taking the business seriously and working in a bipartisan way uh, to do the right thing. Uh, Sadly, that is unusual in Congress today, but it absolutely is what's happening on this committee. And um, Kevin McCarthy, um, the new speaker, and um, Hakeem Jeffries, the new Democratic leader, they sat down uh, with all of us on the committee shortly after it was appointed and, and told us this. They said, look, there are plenty of committees that are very just partisan. I mean, McCarthy admitted, you know, look, um, the weaponization of government committee, everyone knows it's a joke. Everyone knows it's political theater. But this committee is serious. And they made an emphasis of how they've appointed serious members. I can look on both sides of the aisle. And there are a few exceptions, but by and large, that's very much the case. And I can tell you that in the meetings that we've had of this committee so far, everyone is taking this, this challenge seriously. I think everyone recognizes that, um, that this is a big deal. You know, my particular background that I give, bring to the committee uh, is the national security background. There are other economics experts or financial services experts because there are so many dynamic uh, um, parts of this, this competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. But one thing I have to say from a national security perspective is that when you, when you sit on this, the Armed Services Committee and you go into these classified briefings, there are a lot of problems in the world that you realize, oh, you know, the New York Times thinks this is a big deal, but we've got this. We got it under control. And you come out of a classified briefing reassured and confident that we can handle the situation. And then there's a whole other series of issues. You go into a classified briefing and you realize, oh, wow, this is way worse than the general public thinks. 
And I can't tell you how many times with regards to all aspects of the situation with China, it's been the latter. That you go into a classified briefing and you come out and you say, wow, this is much more serious than people think. And I think part of the cooperation, the bipartisan agreement that you see on the committee is a product of members who haven't had all these briefings before getting up to speed on what's really going on, how serious this really is, the, the seriousness of the threat, frankly, and all of us recognizing together, okay, we've really got to do something about this. Um, I, I see we've only got a couple of minutes left here. Let me ask you a question that picks up on the China thing um, uh, in a slightly different way. Uh, you're a member of uh, what I would consider to be the smallest caucus in Congress, which is the number of people in Congress who are actually educated in science. Um, and it's a very small caucus. It's very, it's it's very small, and that was readily apparent the other day when we started to have uh, hearings on TikTok. Uh, now, some portion of the hearings on TikTok were just about China. They weren't. I mean, they said they were about our our security, um, but there are a lot of companies that do what TikTok does, uh, and in fact, there seems to me to be a a big gap here. We, you know, we we're just not dealing in a serious way with the threats to our privacy, the threats to our security that are caused by new platforms that could be caused someday by new technologies like AI that are caused by trade in technology. And yet, the number of people in Congress who can have a coherent conversation about this is, you know, could fit in a phone booth if we still had phone booths. So what, you know, what do we do, what do we do about that? I, I, I believe your undergraduate degree was in physics, so you, you do get some of this. What, 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 how do we, how do we tackle that? Well, I, thank you. I mean, and to be fair, um, I wasn't a brilliant physicist. Otherwise, I might be a physicist today instead of a member of Congress. But uh, well, it's always but, good. To have, it's always good to have a fallback. But look, no, I mean, you, you've said this well. This is a big problem. And let me just say for a second. You know, you're right that like there's a lot of social media companies that do this. I think experts will tell you that none of them do it to the extent TikTok does, and none of them have a state sponsor like the Chinese Communist Party that's really controlling what they're doing. So TikTok is by far the worst offender. But if you were just to say ban TikTok tomorrow, there'd be TikTok too next week. And you're right, it wouldn't do anything to address all the privacy concerns with American companies like Google and Apple and Facebook that obviously own a lot of our our, our personal data themselves. So we do have to have a more comprehensive approach here. And look, I think you're right. I think that part of the problem is that a lot of members of Congress don't even understand how these companies work. You know, we saw this with the Zuckerberg hearings when the Facebook founder came before Congress and, and, and people couldn't even understand how they make money, right? So this is a problem. Um, I've been happy to help uh, some other great members like Chrissy Houlihan, who's an engineer, Stanford engineer, uh, get elected to Congress. She's also a great uh, veteran. But there are very few of us who have any sort of background in science. And that's why it's also important that you have serious committees that actually have hearings to educate members on what's going on. And I think this is another difference you see with the China committee. We've not only have serious members on the committee, we've had very serious witnesses come before the committee, not to make political points, but to actually educate the members of Congress on things that we don't know. Yeah, super, super important. And I, I had a conversation 
with a very senior administration official about this a couple days ago. And uh, they said, look, you know, TikTok's fine. AI is going to hit this town like a ton of bricks. It's going to change the way the economy works. It's going to change what a job is. It's going to change how we fight a war. Uh, and the number of people who are able to, you know, understand the minimum basics about it uh, is, is, is very small. This is actually one of my key issues right now, because I think, I mean, just look at the war fighting aspect here. This is incredibly dangerous. I mean, you're going to have killer robots fighting our wars before you can blink an eye. And we don't have any restrictions on how they're going to be used, right? Um, I'm as concerned about the future of AI-enabled warfare as I am about nuclear warfare. Because at least with nuclear weapons, as soon as they were developed, there was this international effort across the globe, in many ways, uh, in many parts, led by many of the scientists who developed these weapons themselves to limit their use. And, and we're not even trying yet with AI. There's no Geneva Convention on, on, on what we're going to allow robots to do. This is very dangerous. And it's a place where we need American leadership. Yeah, it's a place where we've had some bipartisan leadership since we had a leading Republican official, Arnold Schwarzenegger, try to explain it to us all in The Terminator. Um, but uh, that, which was, is, is frankly a little bit too close for comfort. Uh, the people I know who sort of study how these things work um, find the analogies a little bit unsettling. In any event, uh, Congressman, I'm in exceptionally grateful to you for taking the time to speak to us about so many issues and go into such depth on them. Uh, uh, it is good for us all that you are there and fighting the good fight. And hopefully at some point in the future, we can have you back to continue the conversation. But for now, thanks very much. Well, David, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you. And thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be back soon with uh, the next in our long line of podcasts every week. Bye bye.